This morning, though, the message that God's put in my heart is titled Redemption's Identity. And it's funny, I was at a Christmas service um, this, this past Tuesday night, I believe, Christmas Eve. And they started reading off the genealogy of Jesus. And as they started to read it off, man, it's like the whole, I'd been praying all week, God, what am I supposed to talk about? What am I supposed to talk about? And then this guy starts reading off the genealogy of Jesus. And I was like, seriously? That's what you want me to talk about? The genealogy of Jesus. So, you guys ready? The genealogy of Jesus Christ. Okay, so the way I see the genealogy of Jesus Christ is it's like a massive flight of stairs. So we're going to take some breathers because it's a lot of names. You guys ready though? Okay, if you have your Bibles, um, you could turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. And I'm going to butcher a lot of these names because they're too weird to actually technically be names. We shouldn't even consider them names, but they are. So we're going to start here, Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Minadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon. You guys get anything yet? All right, that's how I felt. And Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. I need some water because this is like, like I said, it's like walking upstairs. All right. Ready for flight two? And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz. We need some mood music. Something, man. I don't, I don't even know where I was. Was I at Ahaz? Yes. Score. And Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation of Babylon. And that's flight two, okay? <sighs> flight three. And after the deportation, or deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abud, and Abud was the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, we got through it. All right, God, thank you for that message. You guys can all go home now. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so the genealogy of Jesus Christ to us in modern day is a long list of names that just confuse the heck out of us. As a matter of fact, I remember I started a discipleship program uh, this past year, and I was just meeting with some of my students one-on-one, -on -one, and we decided, hey, we should go through the book of Matthew. And I was like, yeah, that's an awesome book, so let's go through it. But let's skip chapter 1 because there's a lot of names. They're not going to get anything out of it that week. So I actually did that. That was very awful of me. We skipped chapter one in Matthew because I didn't think the students were going to get anything out of it. Not only that, I didn't know what the heck I was going to get out of it. So for us in today's civilization, we read right through this or we skip right over it. And what we don't understand is it's there for a reason. A lot of times we don't understand that it's there for a reason. And there's some of us, men that, I mean, we've been studying the Bible for 20 plus years. And so we, I mean, we know all of this stuff. And that's awesome. 
But there's a lot of us, myself included, I didn't. And I just thought, you know, it's a list of names. Maybe if I'm having a baby, I'll look through this list and find a cool biblical name or something. That way I don't have to read the entire Bible. Matthew kind of condenses it very, very conveniently for us. And so that's kind of how I think a lot of us see things within the genealogy of Jesus. But the genealogy of Jesus to a first century Jew was a totally different experience, a totally different understanding, a totally different truth. You see, basically a genealogy back then can be compared to what we would have um, kind of like a resume. It's, it's a lot like a resume where, where you, have, you have this list of things that you've achieved and, and things that, that you've done and, and things that you feel make you the proper person for the job that you're applying for, right? And typically on a resume, we don't include everything. And it's the same thing in a genealogy. If you look at Jesus' genealogy here in Matthew, Matthew cuts out multiple people. He doesn't include every single person in Jesus' family line. And so the question is why? And, I mean, very simply, it's because it's like a resume. In the same way that we on a resume, we don't, I mean, typically, I mean, the thing is you don't, you don't put your bad jobs on your resume, right? If you got fired from Sears, you don't put that on your resume. If, if you got caught stealing from your employer, that's not going on your resume. You, you typically want to put stuff that makes you seem like the best person for the job. Trustworthy, responsible, respectful, a leader, all of these things. And typically that's what would go on with a first century genealogy. And so the Jews, in a normal genealogy, would list their greatest ancestors. They would list the best of the best people that were back in their family line. And this is how they were identified as a person. And so people were able to see their genealogy back then at first century Jew would see that list of names and see, oh, this is who this person is. This is, who, this is what this person stands for. And because of that, because of this list of names, I can therefore make an, an estimation of who you are as a person. Okay, That's what a typical genealogy would include. Again, um, gene- Jesus' genealogy, though, isn't very typical. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. He doesn't have a typical genealogy. He doesn't have your typical resume that would say this is the greatest of greatest people that you can, you can put your trust in and all of this stuff. He doesn't have that. And it's a, there's a very awesome reason for it that I feel like the Spirit's revealed to me. And so that's really what I want to talk about this morning. So the author of this, um, this text is Matthew. If you guys didn't know from the name of the book, his name is Matthew. He was an ex-tax collector writing a book to convince his audience that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. His audience were the Jewish people. Matthew's entire gospel is written for Jews to understand. That's why as you read throughout all Matthew, you're going to see all these different prophecies being fulfilled. Matthew will always bring a lot of Old Testament text and say, see, here's your Messiah. See, here's your Messiah. See, here's your Messiah. So they would have accompanied the names on the list that Matthew's writing with the history of their people, the history of Jesus's people. So today we're going to try to take a look at this genealogy through the eyes of a first century Jew, as best as we can. So you guys all have your first century Jew glasses on? Because I don't. So let's do the best we can. Okay, so now we're going to take it slow. We're going to start in verse 1 one more time. Matthew 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
he first starts this thing off, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What that says to their reader is, okay, this guy's of royal lineage. He's from King David. Check. If you were an interviewer interviewing Jesus for a job, you would see that and you would say, awesome, kingly. That's very fantastic. Then he says, son of Abraham, sweet. So he's the heir of the covenant of God, which all the Jews were. And so automatically they have a connection to this guy. Okay. Then he goes on. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. We just read that. They see Abraham, the father of the Jewish people by the covenant of God. They see Isaac, God's promised son to Abraham by the expired womb of Sarah. So, so far, Jesus is doing pretty good on the checklist. This guy's awesome. He's from a miracle family. Expired wombs are giving birth. This is awesome. Then you have Jacob, who cheated his brother Esau by stealing his birthright and his inheritance. So the Jews are like, yeah, we know that story. We'll get past that one. We won't, we won't hold that one against you, Jesus. Don't worry about that one. Then you have Judah, who isn't even the firstborn. He's the fourthborn, the fourthborn son of Jacob. And get this, by Leah. If you know much about Old Testament history, Leah wasn't the pretty wife. Okay, She wasn't the pretty wife at all. This, if you don't remember the story, it's in Genesis 29, 31-35. We're not going to read it, but paraphrase. Jacob worked seven years for his uncle Laban in order to marry Laban's younger daughter, Rachel, the beautiful one. He really wants to marry Rachel. Seven years go by, comes the wedding night, and he wakes up next to Leah. That's a bad wedding night. I don't know, I don't know what they were drinking back then, man, but it must have been strong. Somebody told me it was watered wine, but that doesn't sound like watery wine to me, man. So he com- here comes the wedding night, but Jacob wakes up next to Leah, Rachel's older and less beautiful sister. Her name actually means heart of, like, heart of seeing, like heart to the eyes. So that's sad. Don't name, well, you can add, they're pretty people. I don't know. You choose who you're going to name, whoever. Anyway, I realize somebody in here has probably named that, so I don't want to say that one. Okay, so verse 3. So here we, so we, we just went through Jacob, we have Judah, okay? Now we're in verse three. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. Today we read right past that, by Tamar part. It's like, okay, cool, a girl, that's fantastic. Why don't any of the other people's, why aren't any of the other moms listed yet? And now all of a sudden we have by Tamar, right there in the middle of the text. I, I'm the one who threw in uh, Leah there, just to give you some history. But Matthew actually writes by Tamar. He emphasizes a woman in, in Jesus' genealogy. That's a big deal. Jews didn't do that. So as a, Jew, as a Jewish reader, a first century Jew, you're reading this. Suddenly, here's a woman's name in Jesus' genealogy. That catches your attention almost offensively. What's this woman's name doing in here? Who's Tamar? Who's Tamar? And that would be that reader's First question, who is Tamar? And so we're going to just go through a few key people in this list. I'll, I'll just hit them. But this story about Tamar is way too Jerry Springer for us to simply paraphrase it. So I'm going to ask you guys to turn with me to Genesis chapter 38. And I have it on that one. Sorry about your guys' necks. But that one's broken. Okay. So Genesis 38. Judah and Tamar. And it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. Then Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite 
whose name was Shua. Shua is the name of the man, not his wife. He took her and went into her. And she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. Not very creative. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. A little more creative. Yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in, she- in Shezib when she bore him. So we start out chapter 38 with Judah, who we just, who I just kind of explained a little bit about him, the son of Leah. And Judah goes and marries a Canaanite woman, daughter of Shua, and, and they end up having three kids. And I love the way the Bible does it because it just kind of condenses like years of history into a sentence. It doesn't talk about all the hard times with those kids. You, I mean, parents understand the hard times. But it's just like, no, nah, he had one and then another and then another and then it was all done. Awesome. Wish it was like that sometimes. But I'm just kidding. Zephy's so cute. <laughs> so then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. So Tamar is the wife of Ur. But we just read in Jesus' genealogy that Perez was the son of Judah by Tamar. I told you this is Jerry Springer stuff, man, which we're going to get into. Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Harsh. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law and raise up offspring for your brother. In Jewish culture, if you were a widow, if you were married to a man and then, and then your husband dies and you didn't have children, it was now the next in kin, the next in line, the next brother. It was his duty to impregnate that woman. And that son, that child, wouldn't belong to that brother. It would belong to the dead brother. Okay, so that's what's going on here. It's what Judah's telling Onan. So he says, go into your wife's brother and perform the duty of the brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So as not to give offspring to his brother, oh wait, would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. This is why you take your children to children's church. It's a little graphic. If you'd, I'm not making this up. This is in the Bible. Read the Bible for yourselves, Okay. Kids go to children's church. We talk about this stuff. Okay? All right. Just thought I'd throw it out there. I don't want anybody to get mad at me. Okay. The Bible's graphic, right? Man. Then Judah said to Tamar, oh, so here's what happened. So he's spilling stuff on the ground, disgusting. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. So Judah just lost two sons. Two of his, his two oldest sons just died. I don't think you want to give your next son to this woman. Something bad's about this woman. I mean, kids die when they're with her, okay? So then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. And so really what's going on, the text explains, because he actually feared that his son would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. And in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. So Judah's wife is now dead. And when Judah was comforted after he had mourned, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. So today we do things like go golfing and whatever we do to like relieve stress. They sheared sheep, okay? This is a hard time in life. He and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, they're, she- they're shearing sheep together. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil. Watch this sneaky lady. Wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of a name, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. So she should technically be married again and be, she should have a child by now. But Judah refused to give her Sheila. Okay? So she's a little mad about that. 
When Judah, okay, so she, she's, she's on the entrance to Anam, which is on the road to Timnah. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to eat at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. So again, graphic, sorry. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He said, I will said, he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So she gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood again. So we have Tamar, who both her husbands have died. She's childless. She now dresses herself as a prostitute, waits for her father-in-law, then sleeps with her father-in-law and is now impregnated by her father-in-law. Who's the daddy? Jerry Springer stuff, man, I told you. So, when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, trying to pay his dues to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where's the cult prostitute who is at Anaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I've not found her. So his friend can't find this woman. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, watch this pride, man. Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you still didn't find her. So Judah's living now, wondering, who the heck was that woman? That was, okay, I don't know what's going on with my life now, okay? About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, and this was the custom of the day, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. Remember how she kept his signet, his cord, and his ring? Shouldn't have done that. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father again, identify these, and these are, um, this is by whom I am pregnant. So please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Sheila, and he never knew her again. So when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out and uh, she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Didn't we just read that name in the genealogy of Jesus? Right? Weird stuff, man. Afterward, his brother came out of the scarlet thread or with the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. So Tamar is a twice-widowed woman that impersonated a prostitute in order to seduce her father-in-law, becoming pregnant with his twin children slash grandchildren. Paraphrased. There you go. Say that in one breath. And that's in Jesus' genealogy. That's on his resume. So you're reading this and you're saying, what? Tamar? Seriously? Okay. Whatever, whatever you think. There's a lot of problems with that picture. Those poor kids must have grown up very confused. Do you call him dad? Do you call him grandpa? Do you call him daddy, grandpa? Maybe both. I don't know. This isn't the first one. We're going to get into this stuff. So in Perez, the father of Hezron. So we're done with Perez and that lady. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Aminadab. And Aminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. We have a second woman listed. Not typical. Kind of offensive to a Jew. 
Why are you telling me about the women? I, I want to know about the men. That's what the Jew would be thinking. Now, if we think about Rahab, biblical history will tell us that this is actually Rahab from Jericho when the walls of Jericho fell. If you don't know about Rahab, she was the prostitute, the, the prostitute of Jericho that hid the Israeli spies when they were spying out the walls of Jericho, the, the city of Jericho. She hides them in her home. And because she was obedient to God and hid these people in her home, she's spared when everyone else in Jericho is annihilated. And so you have a prostitute, a cult prostitute, okay? She worshiped false gods. This is a prostitute who then married this man, Salmon, and then she gives birth to Boaz. And so as a first century Jew, you're thinking to yourself, okay, this is the second really sketchy character in this story. Really sketchy. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Matthew emphasizes a third woman in the genealogy. Ruth. We read about her last week. Awesome message. Now, something that, that I wanted to talk about, Ruth was a Moabite woman. And to us, it's like, okay, cool. You know, that's like she's just from some little town called Moab or whatever. No, Moabites were the descendants of incest between Lot and his oldest daughter. And we're going to read about that. This is another one of these weird Jerry Springer biblical stories that we have to read for ourselves. So if you turn with me to Genesis 19, verse 30, and we'll read this one quickly. It says, Now Lot went up out of Zor, and he lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. For he lived in a, so he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine. Again, it's all about that wine. And we will lie with him. Then we may preserve offspring for our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. They, she slept with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the second daughter does the exact same thing. And then we'll jump down to verse 36. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Benami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Ruth wasn't from the best of family lines, but she's included in Jesus' genealogy. That would also be a really awkward story to reminisce about around the dinner table. And then we're moving on. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. He emphasizes yet a fourth woman in the genealogy of Jesus. The, the wife of Uriah, we know to be Bathsheba from 2 Samuel 11 and 12, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, the Hittite whom David had killed after impregnating his wife. So she's an adulterous woman in the lineage of Jesus who's partially responsible for the murder of her husband. Yet for some reason, Matthew includes her in the genealogy of Jesus. Now understand, remember when I said Matthew left other people out? He could have filled in these gaps. They didn't have to be in here. But for some reason, Matthew decides this is important to know about Jesus. So, the next section of, of all these names from Solomon to Rehoboam all the way down to uh, Jeconiah, which I won't read, is basically a list of kings of Israel that alternate between being good and bad. Good and evil kings. For the most part, they alternate. Some even went to the extent of murdering children, of sacrificing children to the false gods, and their names are in the list. 
He could have left them out, but their names are in the list. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, all the way down to Joseph. From Jeconiah to Joseph, Jesus' stepfather, is a list of Israeli, Israeli men that once sat on a throne of Israel that ended up in Nazareth. Their family line goes from the throne of Israel to Nazareth. If you don't know much about Nazareth, it was the bad part of town. That's where you didn't want to send your kids to school. Nazareth was, it was, I mean, it was just really bad. At one point, the, the Pharisees are talking about, or Nathaniel is actually talking about this, and he says, can anything good come from Nazareth? So they, they go from the throne of Israel and over generations end up in one of the worst parts of town that you can be at. All this to point to Jesus. The genealogy obviously ends with Jesus. So as I was reading this and as I was kind of uncovering, and I've been, I mean, I've been studying a lot. It's a lot of information. Basically what the Holy Spirit was, was revealing to me, man, is Jesus came from a family of screw-ups. He came from a family of screw-ups. And a lot of times, we think we have to put on a show that we have it all together. The genealogy of Jesus is very contrary to that belief. Matthew's proving a point. Jesus came from a family of incest, liars, cheaters, thieves, perverts, prostitutes, adulterers, murderers, idolaters, etc., that's where Jesus came from. That's heavy. That's one of those things you don't want to share with your friends. But Matthew writes a book about it. Matthew, again, he's proven a point. He's airing out the dirty laundry in Jesus' family history. Because here's the point. Jesus came from screw-ups to redeem screw-ups. The reason this is in here is because it's not just his story. It's us. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. It just gets so beautiful. So that's kind of the introduction. Okay, And we need to have all that backdrop of where Jesus came from. And now what I want to talk about is this. That even as a baby being born, Jesus was redeeming people. Even in his birth, he was redeeming people. The moment he came into the world, every prophecy, every covenant, every promise was fulfilled to that family. That family that didn't have it all together. He redeemed them in his birth. Matthew had nothing to hide. It wasn't about the beginning or the middle names in the list. It was all about the name at the very end of the list. Redeeming the rest. That's beautiful. So we talked about genealogy. I want to talk about identity next. So everybody say identity. Tap your the person on your left or right or whatever and tell them identity. You guys all sound like you need a lot of coffee. Do we have that much coffee out there? I hope so. One more time. Say identity. There you go. Conviction. I like it. Identity. So I have a question. Who do you associate your name with? Who do you refuse to associate your name with? We all have that really weird relative we really don't want anybody to know about, right? And we all have that person. It's like, are you related to that guy? No. What? Who told you that? I don't know him. I don't know him at all. So, like, dude, you have the same last name. I'm. There's a lot of same last names out there. Your faces look the same. There's a lot of those kinds of faces. I just have one of those faces. You know, 
He's not my cousin, I promise. So we all have really strange relatives that we really don't want people to know about. Even Jesus' own family thought he was crazy a lot of the time. There's times where his brothers and his sisters, they're frustrated with him. They're annoyed with him because he's going around talking about how he's son of God. And they're like, dude, we went to school together. Like, who are, what are you talking about? Okay. And I'm sure someone thinks you're crazy. I'm positive somebody thinks you're crazy. If not, I think you're crazy. That way that statement can be true. And you guys can think I'm crazy too. Okay. We're all a little crazy. Identity. Okay. One more time with conviction. Say, say identity to the person next to you. This is where this all comes together for us in modern day life. So you're sitting there in your chair. Sweet, cool. I learned a little bit of history about the Bible. Fantastic. You know, a little bit more about the genealogy of Jesus. Great. So what? Identity. That's so what? Jesus redeemed his family, right? Here's the thing. Turn, if you, if you can, oh, you don't even have to turn, but Matthew 12, 46 through 50, you know what Jesus does? He says, you're my family. He says this about his disciples. There's, there's these men, they come and they're saying, hey, your brothers and your sisters are looking for you. Your brothers and your mothers, they're looking for you. And he's saying, who, are my, who is my brother? Who is my mother? Who is my sister? And then he points to his disciples and he says, this is my brother. This is my sister. These are my mothers. Those that do the will of the Father of my father, that is my family. See, Jesus redeemed his genealogy and in the same way, he has called us family and by doing so, he has brought us into a life of redemption. Redemption. As a believer, you are no longer associated with your past or the past of your family. Isn't that beautiful? No longer associated with your past. It doesn't matter if it was yesterday. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, it, that's not held against you anymore. His mercies are new every morning, remember? We're not associated with our past. We're associated with the name of Jesus Christ. And this is where identity comes in. It doesn't matter where you've come from. What matters is where you're going. And it doesn't matter who you are or who your family is. What matters is whomever you choose to be now. And this isn't about self-help or self-improvement. This is about redemption by Christ alone. Redemption by Christ alone. That with Christ, every personal and family weakness, what did Paul say? In my weakness, you are strong. All the odds that have been stacked up against us from our family, from ourselves, all of that goes away and is turned into strength in the name of Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? Redemption. Jesus literally means Yahweh saves. How? I'll get to that in a little bit. So Christ redeemed that family in Matthew, and he can redeem you, right? A lot of times, though, we think we're the exception to redemption. We walk around with this attitude, you don't know what I've been through, you don't know what I've done, you don't know who I've done it to. No, he cannot redeem me. There is no redemption for me. There is no hope for me. You want to know what that is? A lie from the devil. Where do lies come from? Lies are from the devil, in the words of Waterboy's mother. Lies are from the devil. Jesus says that the devil is the father of lies and that his native tongue is literally the language of lying. Did you know that? 
Satan's, he's real. If you didn't know that, Jesus talked about him. So if you believe in Jesus, you kind of have to believe in Satan. You can't do one or the other. He's real. And Jesus says he is the father of lies. His native tongue is lying. Every word of his mouth, every word that comes out of his mouth is lies. Satan's very first words to us in humanity is, did God really say, followed by a lie? He gets us to doubt God's goodness and then lies to us. This is, this is an awesome little snippet, man, that the Holy Spirit gave me last night. Here's the truth of the matter. The enemy's going to tell you it's not possible. The enemy's going to tell you, you know what? You can't be redeemed. Did God really say he can do that? Did God really say? Here's the answer. Yes, God really said. You take that question mark that the enemy's placing inside of your mind. You straighten it out into an exclamation point that proclaims how good your God is. Yes, God really said. Yes, I can be redeemed. Yes, there is hope. No, my past doesn't matter anymore. And no, there is no chain that can hold me down, man. And that is Jesus. That is redemption. That is hope. That is beauty. Are you a liar? Are you a cheater? So is his family. Are you a murderer? So are some of his great-grandpas. Sorry for the word, but are you a whore? So are a lot of his great-grandmas. It's not about who you were or even who you are right now, but about who he is. It's not about the, the names in the list. It's about the name at the end of the list. Remember the woman caught in adultery? God, he kind of brought this back to my mind as I was preparing. The woman caught in adultery, she's brought, she's thrown at Jesus' feet. She was caught in the middle of adultery. Odds are all she had on was a little, a little garment or a robe of some sort. She was caught in the middle of adultery. And she's thrown at the feet of Jesus. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day are saying, this woman was caught in adultery. What should we do with her? They wanted Jesus to say stoner. And they all have their stones. And he says, let him who has no sin throw the first stone. What do they do? They all walk away. As I was reading this, it made me think, man, maybe when Jesus picked that woman off the ground and said, I don't condemn you, maybe he was thinking about his family. Maybe he was seeing, this is where I came from. From broken, hurt, desperate people that didn't have it all together. And so he says, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Yes, God really can. What identity are you living by? Christianity, everything we do, it all comes down to that word, identity. How do you identify yourself? Do you identify yourself by the past? That's been redeemed. Did you know that? Past has been redeemed. Cross. Redemption. A present lie? Maybe you think to yourself, well, this is what makes me happy. I can never overcome this. This is just who I am. I'm just like my father. I'm just like my mother. It's just in me. It's, it's, it's who I am. That's been redeemed. The cross. Or are you living by the truth of Christ's redemption constantly working in you? Paul says it like this, and paraphrasing. If you read Romans 7, at the very end of it, basically what he's saying is, I am disgusting. 
And without God, I am disgusting. And then he, he does this beautiful transition between Romans 7 and Romans 8, where he says, he, he says that, I'm a wretched man, oh wretched man that I am. And then at the very end of 7, he says, but thanks and praise be to Jesus Christ. And then in Romans 8, you know what he starts with? But now there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ. What is he saying? He's saying, yes, my past is ugly. He's saying, yes, my story is, it's ugly, it's bad, it's, it's, it's broken. But now I'm in Christ and there is no condemnation. And that is a truth that we as a church need to hold on to and never let go of. There is no condemnation in, for those that are in Jesus Christ. That's, yeah, let's, let's put our hands together for that. That's beautiful. He's saying, man, the past doesn't define me anymore. My family doesn't define me anymore. My social standing doesn't define me anymore. My financial standing doesn't define me anymore. Jesus Christ defines me as his family. As sons and daughters of the one true living God. Sons and daughters of the one true living God. So we talked about genealogy. We talked about identity. Now we're going to talk about reality. Everybody, again, with conviction, tell the person next to you, reality. One more time, reality. So the question is, okay, sweet, Benji, that's awesome. That's all very fantastic biblical information, but how? How? How do I live by redemption? How is this anything more than a motivational message? How do I live by redemption? How do I live by that identity? It's easier said than done, right? That's kind of the, the thing we have in our mind. Jesus tells us an incredible story that I believe sums it up. So if you'll turn with me to Luke 18, and we're almost done with this. Luke 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat on his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, says Jesus, this man went down from his house or went down to his house justified rather than the other or rather than the first. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So as I was praying, God, how? This is, the, this is the reference he gave me. This is how. You see, Jesus didn't come for the righteous. He says this in Matthew 9. I didn't, I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the broken. I came for the sick. I came for the hurting. I came for the screw-ups. That's who he came for. To start off, Jesus justifies broken, helpless, and desperate people that simply call on his name. In this story, we see this Pharisee that is so high and mighty that he looks down on people for their sins and says, thank God I'm not dealing with that. That was his prayer. Thank God I'm not this way. Thank God I'm not that way. You know what I think God the Father was saying at that moment? That's how my people were. How are you going to look down on the past 
of my son's genealogy. How are you going to look down on them like that with your nose all high in the air? And then he goes to this next scene of this, this tax collector. Do you guys remember who wrote the book of Matthew? Matthew, a tax collector. A Jewish tax collector. There's actually biblical scholars that say that this might actually be one of his own personal stories. And he's down on his knees. He won't even lift his eyes up to heaven. He's down on his knees. And he's beating his chest. Which was a sign. It was, it was a symbol of absolute sorrow and brokenness. Brokenness. He's beating his chest and he's saying, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And then you have Pharisee over here. Thank God I'm not like that guy. Look at him beating his chest. That's embarrassing. You see, Jesus didn't come for the righteous. So what do we need? How do we do this? How do we live by redemption? Number one is recognition. Everybody say recognition. Recognition of our brokenness without him absolute recognition of our brokenness without him. Complete desperation. Everybody see desperation. Complete desperation to always have him. Complete desperation to always have him. And three, everybody say absolute dependency. Absolute dependency in him. We need recognition of our brokenness without him that we recognize that without you, God, I am disgusting. I've tried to do it all my own way and it's turned out really bad. Complete desperation to have him to say, God, I'm not going to let go. I am not going to stop pursuing you. You're all I want. You're all I need. And then dependency, that when you have that connection, that relationship with God, you will never let it go. You will never let it go. Now, some Christians grow comfortable and we forget how badly we need him. And this is basically blind pride and self-righteousness that's fallen out of love with its redeemer. What's the answer? Recognition of your brokenness, complete desperation, and complete dependency. You see, we can go to church so often that we think we have it all together. False. As long as we don't recognize that we need him and we're desperately in need of him, you've missed the point. And you're living out of self-righteousness. You need him. I need him. And without him, I can do nothing. Those are Jesus' words. Without me, you can do nothing. How can we fall out of love with our Redeemer? And all the things that he's done for us. And some people, some believers and unbelievers alike, still think that they're too bad or they're too broken to even have him. You see, some of us are living in shame today. Some of us are living in sin, in doubt, in fear, etc. Living is what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians as mere humans. Kind of a weird phrase for Paul to use. He says to, to the Corinthians, there's quarreling among you. There's all these divisions and fights. You're living like mere humans. Why does he say that? That we're living just like mere humans? Because the truth is, 
We're not mere humans anymore. Do you know that as Christians? The Bible says that Christ has made you into a new creation, which is actually understood as an absolute new species. It's not like this metaphoric thing. It's a truth. A new creation. A brand new creation that the old has gone and the new has come. The redemption has taken place in my heart and so I am a new creation. I don't have to live by the old nature anymore. And so Paul says to us when we do live by the old nature, he says, man, you're acting like mere humans. Pick it up a notch. Jesus, it's all about Jesus. So what's the answer for those of us that are living in shame or sin or brokenness that feel like there's no hope for us? The answer is recognition of your brokenness so you're halfway there or a third of the way there. Complete desperation to have him and absolute dependency upon him. There is no one past redemption. There is no one past the love or the grace of God. And to close, I want to close with this, this image. If you'd all imagine a stained glass window with me. A stained glass window with me. See, we see a stained glass window and it's, it's beautiful. And it tells a story. And, and we see it in all its, all its splendor and it's, it's, all, it's, just, it's just beautiful, right? Have you ever thought about what it looked like before it was put up that way? Broken. Shattered glass all over a table. Waiting for the master artist to put it together so that it could be beautiful again. Maybe the point to our broken past, maybe the point to Jesus' broken genealogy was for him to say, you know what, it's broken, but I can make it beautiful again. Maybe the reason we have so much hurt in our hearts, in our lives, in our stories is because God is saying, give it to me and I'll make it beautiful. Give it to me and I will make it beautiful. Broken but beautiful. (laughs) That's a beautiful image for me. As believers, we simply need to live by our God-given identity, that we are his family, sons and daughters of the living God, not by our own understanding of ourselves. See, a lot of us think a lot of bad things about ourselves. Stop it. Simply put, stop it. That's not what Jesus thinks about you. Who's the determiner of truth, you or him? He is. In case you didn't know the answer, it was rhetorical. He is. We think a lot of negative things about ourselves. Stop it. Turn to the person next to you. Say, stop it. Now, you guys didn't say that one with conviction. You guys said, tell them, really stop it. Like, they're poking you and you just want them to stop it. Say, stop it. There's a lot of us that are living, and I don't mean to be offensive, but I do mean to be truthful. There's a lot of us that live in pity parties. And we want everybody to feel sorry for us. Stop it. Jesus said, I've already redeemed you. That's not who you are anymore. You're not broken like you think you are. I've put you back together. Recognize him. Love him. Worship him. And stop it. A lot of us have gone to the extent where we're so self-righteous. Stop it. You need him. You can't do it without him. You need him. You always will. 
And then some of us live by the world's estimation of ourselves. Well, this is how much money you make. This is what you drive. That's what you wear. Man, if the world made an estimation of herself, of ours, of us, if that's what determined who we were, have you seen my car? If you haven't, it's bad. My trunk doesn't shut all the way. It overheats from here to my house. If I were to drive, I swear, if I were to drive five more minutes, it would overheat on me every single day. But you know what? That doesn't matter. Who cares? The world doesn't determine who we are. Jesus does. It doesn't matter what your job is. What matters is who's your savior. What's the name at the end of the list? We're now sons and daughters of the one and only living God, living by the literal life of Jesus Christ inside of us, is what Paul says. That's what John says. John chapter 1, he has now given us the right to be sons and daughters of the living God. Born not of flesh, but born of God. This wasn't in my notes, but I'm going to say it anyway. When you're born of somebody, did you know that you have their DNA in you? So when John writes, he gave us the ability, the right, to be born of God, not of flesh, but of God. You know what that means? You have the DNA of God instilled into you, placed into you. The life of Christ is inside of you. That's incredible because that means that everything that's true about Jesus, that's what God thinks about me. Remember those pity parties? Stop it. Because everything that was true about him, everything that is true about him is true about you. That's beautiful. That's redemption. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Is what Paul says. And he means that literally, not figuratively. This is redemption's identity. This is redemption. This is freedom. Do you lay at home at night or wherever you guys hang out? I, I lay at home at night, so I don't know where you guys lay at home. <laughs> and wonder, who am I? Why can't I get over this? Why can't I be free? It's because you still have it simply, and it's not something that, that's bad about you. It's simple. You need to recognize that Jesus Christ is inside of you, and you've been given the ability to live by his life. That's power. This is what those people that can worship Jesus like fools have found. You know those people, you come to church, and they have their hands up before the music starts, and you're like, dude, you're an overachiever. Calm down a little bit. There's like zero beat to the song and somebody's dancing. It's like, what? You know what they found? Their identity. Have you found yours yet? Because it isn't about the beginning of our story. It isn't even about the middle of our story. It's about his name taking over our story. He takes the good, the bad, and the ugly, and he turns it into beauty. It's about his name taking over our story.